0: Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to our last recording in our Daniel mini-series. If you have a Bible handy, I would love it if you could turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. Now, last week, we went all the way up to chapter 10, where Daniel has this vision of this mysterious person who has this uncanny resemblance in his description to, well, how Jesus Christ is depicted in Revelation chapter 1. But while that identity isn't 100% certain for Daniel chapter 10, it is clear that this individual, this person, has a message for Daniel to record. Something for Daniel to bring up to let everybody know what is happening, and finally, after being withstood by this demonic prince of Persia, now this message can be brought out to the people. And that brings us to Daniel chapter 11, which... Oh, I, I hope you all have patience here. Daniel chapter 11 and 12 are infamous for difficulties in interpretation. And as we go about it, I'm going to have my commentary from my Lutheran study Bible open because it's a quick reference guide to some of the historical facts that are being brought up. But it's not just history, it's also tracking when Daniel is changing subjects here. So the prophecy he is given uh, talks about two very important people, one who already was and one who will be. But let's, let's go ahead and take a look and let's see what I'm meaning here. In Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, and do as he wills. And as soon as he is risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Now let's go ahead and stop right there. And this is the future. But it's Daniel's future. The individuals that are being brought up here, they're covering about two, three hundred years of history and basically the end of the Persian Empire. So it says here, Three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. So that's Cambyses, uh, Bardia, or Gamata, or pseudo Smerdis, Darius I, and uh, Xerxes First. Now Xerxes, we know, invaded Greece and was defeated at Salamis. And it is after that we get this mighty king in the third verse. It says, Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And that, of course, would be Alexander the Great. How do we know this? It is because as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So, there were four generals to Alexander the Great. As soon as Alexander had conquered the known world, as it was, you know, the world is yours, Alexander. It's, well, he got drunk. He was a partier. He he was very much a hedonist, at least towards the end of that. But the moment he finally had this empire, he dies. And then his kingdom is divided between his four generals. Sorry, my voice is a little hoarse here. But it is from there, by dividing into the four winds, that we see now... Daniel's going to go into some of the intriguing politics here. But real quick, a note on the word Greece. In uh, verse 2, it says he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Now there were there were a lot of wars between the Persians and the Greeks. I'm sure many listening to this have watched 300 or heard about the Spartans, you know, the 300 Spartans with King Leonidas. That was part of a lot of campaigns against the Greeks. The Persians were, for a very long, concerted effort, trying to take out this competing kingdom, and eventually fell when Alexander finally uh, took over. But the word Greece is not there in the Hebrew. In fact, the actual word given there, it is Yavon. Uh, Yavon. Or Jovan, uh, it literally means a son of Japheth, also his descendants and their lands. If you ever want to look this up, it's Strong's number three one two zero, and it is from the same the same root or word origin as uh, Yonah. Now Yonah, Strong's number three one two three, it actually means dove. So, this is almost like Daniel here, while well, he's receiving these words from this heavenly being, right? From the, it could be Christ himself, it could be anybody, it's, well, we know that it is Greece, based on the historical description of what happened to Alexander's kingdom, as well as um, Daniel chapter 8 with the ram and the goat, you know, the single horn that splits into four right but the fact that yonah and yavan being related terms people who are are based off of japheth this is basically saying this western empire it isn't up to daniel to know the term alexander or Ptolemy, or the Seleucid Empire, uh, Daniel is given, hey, this, these Japhethites, these uh, Europeans, basically, these, these Caucasians from the West, are going to be coming and taking over. And that does refer, then, because Japhethites, or Europeans, aren't really featured heavily in the Old Testament, And it's kind of for good reason. Every time the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah tried to set up uh, trade routes or a navy, uh, the ships sank. God was kind of isolating them from the developments of the western world where white people are and kept them from a lot of the very, very far eastern areas where Japhethites that are uh, Asian or Chinese or Indian. uh, Keeping them from that, God was isolating them. But now, Daniel is brought to this understanding that, hey, Yavon is coming. Everybody's going to be coming up against Yavon in the Persian Empire. Now, the interesting thing also, by the way, is that um, Yonah and Yavana are actually Sanskrit words, too. Because Javon was the fourth son of Japheth. So that's how we know this is a Japhethite thing but even indians would bring up that yona and yavana were basically greek speakers alexander the great did get all the way to the, like the border of india and i believe he was repelled around that time but even then this sounds an awful lot like ionian which is kind of a cognate for people around the greek peninsula but At that time, let's go ahead and move on. Sorry, I just had to get down that rabbit trail. It's so interesting for God to say. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 10 with the table of nations, the fourth son of Japheth. And these people that Judah and Israel had never really interacted with beyond um, Solomon knowing some Greek terms from the musical instruments he got, eh, that's about it. And and so suddenly now the the Persians are going to drag Israel and all of Judah into conflict with the Greeks. And the Greeks are going to win. So we go on in verse 5 here of Daniel chapter 11 to see what happens after Alexander the Great dies. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule and his authority shall be a great authority after some years they shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement but she shall not retain the strength of her arm and he is and his arm shall not endure but she shall be given up and her attendants he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times And that is a uh, reference to Ptolemy I, ruler of Egypt, because, again, Alexander even conquered Egypt. So now these Greeks are ruling Egypt with um, semi-Pharaoh-esque trappings and pictures and costumes. And so then Ptolemy II of Egypt gave his daughter Berenice in marriage to Antiochus II, ruler in Syria, who had divorced his first wife, Laodicea. So Laodicea regains power, kills Berenice, and uh, Antiochus II is also killed. This is all historical details that feel like they are not relevant to us as Christians. Especially as Lutherans when we hear law and gospel, law and gospel. And here God is giving Daniel a, a future history lesson on the palace intrigue of Greek rulers in Egypt and Syria. It begs the question, why is this important? We'll get to that. But for now, we need to understand that something is being set up that will be pertinent to God's people. So let's go ahead and continue here in verse 7. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Uh, Ptolemy III, brother of Berenice, avenged his sister by executing Laodice and he plundered Syria, which is, you know, a sign of how big of a deal he was. These are all the children and grandchildren of the most powerful generals known to mankind at that point. You know, they conquered the known world under Alexander's thumb. So then we get to verse 10. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted. And he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. Um, so Seleucus the second was succeeded by his sons, and this is again from the Lutheran Study Bible. Seleucus the third and Antiochus the third. A large part of Israel was captured during this time, but in response, Ptolemy the fourth of Egypt went to war against Antiochus the third. And after Antiochus lost about 7,000 men in a battle at Raphia in 217 BC, he raised an even larger army to invade the Ptolemaic kingdom. What a mess, by the way. (laughs) What a stinking mess is this, that you look at the ancient world here. The Persian rule, until they messed with Greece, was more or less peaceful. Yeah, there were some battles here and there, there were some wars here and there, but so long as Daniel was an influential figure for the Persians, well, there wasn't all that much for them to do. They were a more peaceful, conciliatory empire than you see with Babylon or Assyria before them, or even Egypt. But the Greeks here now, these, uh, the Ptolemies, the Seleucid, um, Antiochus, and his armies and everything, they can't stop fighting each other. And so it keeps going on. We read here in verse 14. In those times, many shall arise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. So in other words, uh, Judeans are going to try to join up and attack the, the Egyptians here. I guess Greek Egyptians would be a better term moving on, Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them, he shall give them the daughter of women to per, to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Uh, then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. So what does all, what does all this mean? Well, um, so we know that Judeans wage this war alongside the, the northern empire here, trying to fight against Egypt. And, well, Sidon is taken down. But Antiochus III ends up making peace with Egypt, and Antiochus III gives his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy V, hoping she would uh, you know, influence Egyptian policy, but she ends up being loyal to her husband and all of Egypt. So eventually, though, in verse 18, we see Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastland and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Uh, this Roman general, Scipio Africanus, he defeats Antiochus III and takes his son, later entitled Antiochus IV, hostage. So, uh, Antiochus III is later on, we see in verse 19, when it says, He shall turn his face back towards the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall, shall not be found. Um, Antiochus III was assassinated in 187 BC while attempting to rob a temple to pay tribute to Rome. And this is in the background that the Romans are gaining influence and power. But... Daniel's vision in this explanation here that God is giving him doesn't dwell on Rome the way other chapters do. But let's go ahead and start reading here in verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. That is a reference to Antiochus IV, who may, you know, could have been involved in. Uh, the plot to murder his brother here. Oh wait, no, sorry. Seleucus IV succeeded his father and he sends, he sends Heliodorus to seize temple treasury in Jerusalem. Um, but he ends up getting poisoned by Heliodorus, whom he sent to get all this treasury. But anyway, we, we hear in verse 21, in his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. And this is Antiochus the fourth. And he he might have actually ended up being part of this plot to assassinate his brother. Um, He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth. But his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. Boy, that's a lot of stuff. Right, but a quick rundown of what all that points to: um, uh, Ananias the third, the high priest at Jerusalem, is featured in verse twenty-two. Armies shall be utterly swept away, even the prince of the covenant. Um, there is an alliance here, possibly with Ptolemy the sixth of Egypt, in verse twenty-three. And only a small number of people support Antiochus the Fourth at first. But even when he goes to war with Ptolemy the Sixth, Ptolemy the Sixth is taken prisoner when Antiochus IV occupies Egypt. So we get into these details, and there's some people, um, there are some historians here and some um, I guess on the liberal side of things, some biblical commenters who believe that Whoever wrote Daniel here was actually just reading a history book and rewording it to sound prophetic because it is so detailed, even to the people sitting at the table here or those who eat his food in verse 26. Um, Eulias and Linnaeus counseled Ptolemy to attack Antiochus. But this is the nature of the revelation of God. Every now and then, God will give these hyper-detailed prophecies that you just can't make up. Uh, Isaiah 53 is, I believe, the most famous and obvious example of this, where Isaiah gives basically a picture of Christ crucified for you in such detail that there were a lot of people that believed that, oh, this could not have been the real Isaiah writing it. Until we found Isaiah 53 among the Dead Sea Scrolls, that is, proving that yes, this was a real, legitimate prophecy. So, resting on the Word of God, we see this hyper detailed description of what's going on in the court intrigue and the wars between the Seleucids um, and the, uh, the Ptolemies and everything going on. And then, starting in verse 29, the vision and the message to Daniel changes in attitude it changes just a little bit here and it's it's hard to notice but it turns out there's two people that are going to be discussed here so let's continue here in verse uh, 29 covering the second campaign of Antiochus against Egypt at the time appointed he shall return return and come into the south but it shall not be this time as it was before For the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Well, now we're getting more of this Holy Covenant language. What do we mean by Holy Covenant? Well, now we're we're getting this idea that Antiochus IV is against God. He is against the people in Judah here. And he has this kind of personal grudge against them. But let's, let's continue reading here in verse 31. Because it says he's going to pay attention to those who forsake it. Verse 31 of Daniel 11. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress. And shall take away the regular burnt offerings and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate, or the abomination of desolation. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Hmm. So, Antiochus fourth Epiphanes sets up the abomination that makes desolate. What is that a reference to? Well, the history has it that Antiochus Epiphanes sacrifices a pig to Zeus on the altar of the temple. And he sets up regular sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem to pagan false gods. And that inspires a revolt by Judas Maccabeus uh, or the Hasmoneans to resist all of his or- Antiochus' orders here and bring them into a rebellion, and that starts a war. Now, we would think that this means we understand what the abomination of desolation is. But we're going to turn here. We're going to keep your finger in Daniel 11. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. Far after, a long time after the Maccabean revolt. So if you're here with me in Matthew chapter 24, let's go ahead and start reading in verse 15. And this is, this is the interesting thing. We can think that we know that the abomination of desolation is automatically Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificing a pig to Zeus. Or setting up these pagan sacrifices in the temple. But our Lord Jesus says here in the 15th verse... So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Well, what on earth does that mean? Well, it says let the reader understand. That's probably Matthew's uh, editorial comment here, underlining the significance of this. It could be the destruction of the temple. But is is it really the destruction of the temple? Is... And that was in AD 70, by the way, after the, uh, the revolt against the Romans. The, uh, the Romans come in in AD 70 under General Titus, and they just wipe, wipe the temple off the map. They burn it down. They burn Jerusalem to ashes. But is that an abomination, or is that a tragedy? It, what is Jesus really getting at here? So I look at this. And we see what Martin Luther saw. Daniel is not just given details here on Antiochus' epiphanies. He is also being given details on the Antichrist. And so behind the direct words of Antiochus' life, we are also given this notion here of what is life going to be like under the Antichrist? It's almost like Antiochus was a type. If we remember our typology here, in the Old Testament, there is type and shadow of future things. Joseph, uh, you know, son of Jacob, uh, Joseph in the multicolored technical dream coat, everything that that, he ends up being a picture of Christ. David is a picture of Christ, a type of Christ. Adam as well a type of Christ, where something about their life foreshadows the gospel. But here we have a a type of antichrist. And that's where we look into what is going on here in this shift from Daniel 11. We're going to go back here to Daniel 11, and we're going to be going back and starting. We're going to read it again in uh, verse 32 here, no sorry, verse 31. And we're going to take a look now with a listening ear, not just about some Greek general here, some Greek king that wants to extinguish temple worship in Jerusalem. It goes beyond that. So let's reread that. In verse 31, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress. And shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white, until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So now, Daniel is given some details here about what life is like for those under the rule of the Antichrist, that mirrors or is foreshadowed by the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes. That Antiochus comes in with flattery to false believers or to believers that are half-hearted towards God who tries to get them to do what he wants. And, And it's okay, you can still call yourself a Christian. You can still call yourself an observant Hebrew. Maybe you can even go to the temple. You can't sacrifice to your God, but you can look at it. That kind of thing. And those who are faithful will take action to stay faithful and they are going to be met with massive resistance. Sword and flame, captivity and plunder. But when they stumble they shall receive a little help. So and even then with flattery people are going to join themselves with those who are uh, loyal to the Lord our God history is going to repeat itself. In fact, I would even say it's possible history has repeated itself more than once here. But let's keep going into here. This is where we see more of this kind of parallel biography between now not just one person, but two. So starting in verse 36, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Or land as payment. So we understand here that this description is turning from Antiochus to more of an understanding of the Antichrist. Because we don't really... Well, Antiochus did call himself God Manifest, right? Right? It doesn't sound like he really, because he was sacrificing to other gods, he's not doing what this guy is doing. He's not saying that he is above all gods, magnifying himself against and above everything. Now there's some controversy, because we hear about the old Lutheran position that still is valid today, that there is an office of Antichrist today inhabited by the papacy. Uh, now, part of this is because of documents like Unum Sanctum, which the pope, I believe it was Boniface Eighth, declared himself basically king of the world and said if it is necessary to submit to the pope to go to heaven, meaning the pope had essentially declared himself to be a god. And there have been old popes in the medieval era that did declare themselves to be something of a god. And by claiming to be the vicar of Christ, see, there is anti- as in against Christ, antichrist, and then there's anti, also meaning in the place of Christ. An antichrist can literally be, and mean as a word, somebody who is in the place of, or vicar of Christ, and that is the official title of the Pope today. A vicar of Christ, somebody standing in his place, and that's where some unfortunate stuff happens. but, does that mean all popes are damned? Because they're all secretly anti-Christ, as in against Christ? No, there have been good popes that even declared sola fide. One of the first bishops of Rome out there, Clement of, Al- Clement of Rome, who came after Peter, he, he was somebody who proclaimed justification by faith. He was somebody who held to the gospel. A great man, even. And everybody loves uh, Gregory the Great, who had more or less orthodox doctrine. It'd be hard to tell him apart from a lot of the Lutheran crowds. But they inhabit an office that is in the place of Christ. Now, you can turn here with me if you want, if you want to keep your finger in Daniel 11. I'm going to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because this is where we get into this sticky, thorny notion of a final Antichrist. Starting in verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, that's obviously a reference to what Daniel is talking about here, right? But, it sounds to me like Paul is a little bit more specific than this unbroken line of the papacy, which actually has been broken quite a bit if you ever look up the Avignon papacy. The point is, is that there seems to be a final Antichrist pointed. Now, is that necessary for us to believe as Christians? No. No. Uh, Paul could have been saying, well, yes, there will be a man as in an office, somebody in this office of Antichrist, for a long time until Christ returns. But Paul can also be, his language is pretty specific. It sounds an awful lot like he's saying, no, there's going to be an individual that is the final Antichrist. In this Antichrist, as we just read from Daniel 11, 36 through 39 is going to be a slick individual, kind of a con man, dealing with people, with um, payments, under-the-table stuff here, trying to wheel and deal his way to greater and greater power and ownership of everything. Now, does that have to be a a final Antichrist? No. Martin Luther did believe this was the case, and I'm inclined to say that as well. But there have been lots of popes that were wheelers and dealers. And again, Unam Sanctam, written by Boniface VIII, was during a time in which Boniface was pushing around literally every single king in Europe that he could get his fingers on. He was telling them what to do, what not to do. Uh, Kings were told, you're going to be excommunicated if you don't follow what the pope says. And this is something that lots of popes have done. And even to this day, Pope Francis... He's getting himself into, well, quite a bit of controversy by messing around with uh, this past week, going in and allying himself with various gigantic mega corporations and banks to influence how the world does its economy. Crazy stuff. But again, does that preclude or exclude the idea of a final Antichrist? The capital A against Christ final boss so to speak. No, that is well within a possibility, and I believe it to be a likely thing. But let us keep in mind here, this isn't what we have been presented oftentimes growing up when we hear about an Antichrist. Let's continue reading here in verse 40, and we're going to keep reading from chapter 11, verse 40, all the way to chapter 12, verse 4. So it says here in verse 40, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab, and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver, and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction." And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn away to righteous—sorry, and those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars, forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Well, what's that getting at even in the middle east the hot spot of wars here people are preserved even pagans and this is kind of a foreshadowing of gentiles being accepted into the kingdom of god that god would actually actively protect edom and moab where most of that i believe is in the area of jordan today We look at that and what is the picture of the Antichrist? If indeed this is speaking about a final Antichrist. The way he's pictured in movies like Left Behind and books like Left Behind, things like uh, Hal Lindsey and the the idea of many of our uh, pre-millennial brothers and sisters, people who hold to like rapture theology and stuff. They believe in this gigantic one world government headed up by this super powerful world ruler who always gets his way and oppresses everybody like it is the 1984 book where um, dissent is so looked down on and crushed that well I better not speak up your mouth Christians are going to be living in sewers or in the woods trying to hide there could be some of that but even if there is a final antichrist we can't forget that he he has a type before him that is the uh, the Antiochus Epiphanes individual who is always at war. The Antichrist never fully achieves his dream of being this world dictator, even if that is his goal. To the contrary, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes ends up dead. <laughs> and it's it's pretty much after that that we see here that this um, we see that this Antichrist figure, this final Antichrist, never gets full control. He's always putting out fires. He's always busy. So let not your heart be troubled, dear beloved. If there is a final Antichrist and it's blatantly obvious to everybody that that's the case, we can actually rest our laurels in knowing, A, our hope is in Christ's return after that, as Daniel says you know, Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, now prince over God's Israel, the church, blowing his trumpet, heralding the return of our Lord Jesus, who comes in, and it says here, those who are asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, the resurrection, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt, the final judgment, those who are wise For us, believing in the gospel, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Meaning this is our hope, this is what we ultimately hope for, the certainty of Christ's promise that he will return and fix things, bringing us to everlasting righteousness and glory with God our Father in the new heavens and new earth. That's our ultimate hope. But we shouldn't get so downtrodden as to think that this, uh, this final Antichrist, and again, I'm giving it 85% chance that there will be a final Antichrist, he's not going to ever have so much control that you can't flee. And if Jesus in uh, Matthew 24 is speaking of the final Antichrist when he talks about the abomination of desolation here, His advice is to flee, which means that you and I and anybody surviving during that time is going to have the opportunity to just straight, flat-out run, to get out of Dodge and go somewhere that is safe and secure for us to go to. And if we trust in the Lord, we're not going to be so worried about persecution that we're building bunkers or buying... 800 years worth of food to feed our new, you know, tribulation colony. The more important thing is the solution, what Daniel's vision points us to. God telling him, yes, this is going to happen, but ultimately there is the final judgment and complete deliverance for all who believe. Amen to that. But let's go ahead and... um, Let's look at the closing matters here of Daniel chapter 12. Where he he actually looks and finds some of the details to questions we might ask as well. Starting in verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked. And behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Great. A time, a times, and half a time. Three and a half times, I guess. That's half of seven, and we can't, uh, it's good to know that, yes, Antiochus Epiphanes had banned the regular burnt offering for about three and a half years in Jerusalem, but we continue here. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, "O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, in the abomination that makes desolate is set up there shall be one thousand two hundred and ninety days, or you know, three and a half years. Blessed he who is he who awaits and arrives at the one thousand three hundred and thirty five days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. That's the end of Daniel. And we don't get exactly what this 1290 days and 1335 days is getting at, but a bit of a hint is given here in the book of Revelation. Let's turn to the book of Revelation. Um, We're going to be in chapter 12 here. In chapter 12, we see of Revelation, while you're turning there, the number 7 is a special number. It's a, it's a holy number, and we see it popping up everywhere in prophecies. There's something special about this God number 7. And like 10, it suggests kind of a completeness here. So let's go ahead and we're going to read Revelation 12 here, starting in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems." his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child she might he, he might devour it she gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron but her child was caught up to God into his throne and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished For 1,260 days. Hmm. Well, what is that? Well, Luther, he he describes the abuses and the false understandings of the medieval mass as a dragon's tail. Um, But it's most likely Satan's rebellion. His original fall from heaven after trying to rebel against God... And I've said before, as Luther says, whenever God builds a church, the devil builds a chapel. God has had his people, his chosen people on the earth since the Proto-Evangelium of Genesis 3.15 when he first preaches the gospel to Adam and Eve. And since then, the dragon, the serpent of old, has always been after God's people, trying to destroy them. And it is after this child is born, Christ, after he appears, the devil tries to destroy him. But it says in verse five of Revelation 12, her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Christ returns after his death, he raises from the dead and he returns to the Father to be at his right hand. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished. For 1,260 days. Hmm. What do we mean by 1,260 days? Because it was 1,290 days in Daniel chapter 11 here. Uh, Well, what do we make of that? Well, the Lutheran study Bible, when it says... uh, 1,260 days, it's a time, times, and half a time. Or even as uh, three and a half days in chapter 11, verse 11. Uh, It is likely a reference to Daniel here. Because again, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, did terrorize Jerusalem for three and a half years. But it's more of an understanding of persecution for God's people. Where they're preserved by God but they're also persecuted. And I think this is where it, what it gets at. The number seven is a complete number. It's a prime number. It is a number that is used to say, here's the totality of the message from God. So we look at the church era from the time Christ ascended to the Father's right hand all the way to his return. Let's call that one seven half of that is persecution. Half of that is hard times on the church. You might say the other half is, well, nourishment, growth, prosperity for the church. And these halves don't have to be one half, one three and a half, and then another three and a half in sequence, but they can be overlapping at the same time the church is always small and persecuted. When we look at the invisible church, the small body of all true believers in Jesus Christ. However, even though this is the case, Christianity always spreads like wildfire everywhere. We are always growing. It's a paradox, because we're always persecuted, we are always the most hated group of people on the planet, but we are also, at the same time, appealing to all as God regenerates souls. It's why, that is exactly the reason why, I believe, the Antichrist, the final Antichrist, if and when he shows up, is never going to achieve full, complete control. Because how could he? He is, he is effectively executing only half of, the, uh, half of everything that's going on if indeed there is a final Antichrist. The other half, the church is still growing. So of course the Antichrist is going to be distracted by putting out fires and rebellions and little wars here and there. To the point that we as faithful, baptized believers in Christ should not worry. Now, yes, if we're martyred, we're martyred. But the more important thing is we look to the end of the matter. And the, you know, God even tells Daniel through this figure speaking, hey, don't ask this kind of question. I told you it's all shut up and sealed. Look to the end of the matter. Christ returns. We are saved. And there is an ultimate resurrection and everlasting life and joy for all of us. And we praise God for that. Let's take that to the Lord in prayer, and we will wrap this up. Heavenly Father, we thank you very much for the holy prophet Daniel and for this mysterious but rich, wonderful work that you have given us through him. That this prophet can show by his life that you are sovereign over all things. And relate to us by visions that you will take care of us. And that times may get hard, but you always provide for us. You nourish your people. You help us, O Lord. That we may always remain in the hope of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ in the final end of days where we can look forward to everlasting, eternal, perfect life with you. May we remain encouraged by this. And while there may be mysteries, O Lord, that we are not privy to, the extra 45 days at the end of... Daniel chapter 12, that we just don't know what he's referring to. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that the main point is still the main point, and that is not taken from us in spite of the mysteries. Oh, Heavenly Father, may we always hold the true faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in your mercy upon us for the forgiveness of all our sins. We love you, O Lord, and we thank you very much. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray it. Amen. And all right, everybody, that uh, that wraps up our Daniel mini-series here. It's kind of a whirlwind process here, trying to cover all this survey here of Daniel in just four installments. But it's good to know the basics about it, and then maybe some sometime in the future we'll get into the nitty-gritty details of every single verse. Uh, Lord have mercy, that'll be a long series. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. Amen.